Hi guys, welcome to this episode of the Comedy Defect Podcast. This is the Comedy Defect Podcast, TCDP. Sounds like something should be rubbing on your knee. That They say it won't hurt, but it, it does hurt. But this episode will not hurt because this is a great episode, episode 33, with Simon Lilly. Simon is a very good friend of mine. He took a fringe show up in 2013, which he got a four-star review on. But that run did not go according to plan. It went very badly the first day, which we talk about here on the show. We also talk a bit about Simon's personal life. He's going through some stuff at the moment. But he's a lovely fella. A lot of time for Simon. He runs a bi-weekly gig at the Duchess of Cambridge. But what's been going on with me? Well, I am getting through a gauntlet of lists. I'm finding out that multitasking is not my forte. That is definitely not my forte. I feel like that I'm stuck in that film, The Cube. And every room is just a task that I have to do. And it's just slowly, it won't kill me quickly, it'll kill me slowly just with stress. And I'm trying to get my teeth into some stuff at the moment. I've got my Edinburgh Fringe show coming up and I'm previewing that. And I'm trying to get stuff, stuff done, but things keep falling in my way. But that is what's happened. I'm getting through it. I'm doing it. If you like this podcast, you can follow us on Twitter. We're there, at The Comedy Defect. If you want to follow me, I'm at Winter Phonander. If you want to come see my live stand-up gig dates, which I'm be previewing a fringe show for 2017, which is the year we're in, you can come see those live stand-up gig dates on my website, which is, of course, winterphonander.com. That's right, winterphonander.com. If you didn't get it there, come see the dates there. Come see me live. Come talk to me. If you like this podcast and you feel like you want to donate something to us, go to Patreon. Just type in The Comedy Defect Podcast and donate as much or as little as you want. But hey, if you can't donate anything, leave us a nice, honest review on iTunes or Podbean. That's all that's been going on in my life at the moment. Just trying to get through lists, trying to get stuff done, trying to get things organised. Yeah, I've no time for the chaos. I've no time for the world's chaos at the moment. I'm just trying to get through my own lists right now and hammer together this fringe show for 2017. I say, come see it. Dates are available on the website, which is winterphonander.com. Come see it there. And I'm also getting through that Guinness Encyclopedia. The jokes for that will be on the internet, on Twitter, at Guinness Jokes. And the title for that is Encyclopedic Jokes. If you like those, like them, share them, yeah, why not retweet them? But this is episode 33 with a very good friend of mine, a very funny guy. As Brendan Burns would say, fucking great. Simon Lilly. Simon Lilly. Hello. Welcome welcome to the comedy. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Yeah. How are you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Things are all right on the whole, you know. Uh, You have to say that. You know, there'll be uh, people listening, and I don't, I don't want to depress the hell out of them. But it is actually Blue Monday today. Oh, it is right. Um, so, um, so an honest answer. Yeah, I'm doing all right. Doing okay. Considering yeah. all things considered, yeah. you don't want to give away your friend show just yet. You no. want to like just? No, no, no. no it's no, not fully no, worked no, out no, yet. No, 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 I haven't got one. I haven't got one. We got through Friday thirteenth. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize Friday thirteenth followed by Blue Monday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I only just found out today it was Blue Monday actually because I was uh, I noticed it on the on the train. There was a brilliant advert for Netflix written by Lemony Snicket. I don't know if you're mm. familiar with Lemony Snicket, but it's superb. I, I I won't bore you with that, but it, it was so so brilliantly done. Best mm. bit of advertising I've seen for a long time. Right. Totally drew me in because I didn't know it was an advert. There there was absolutely no brand on it at all. I suppose there was kind of like a faint watermark of, of the Netflix kind of emblem, but that's mm. it. All right, all things considered, I mean, like, you know, my, my life's all right. 
My wife's all right. She's had um, this thing, a horrible thing called chronic fatigue syndrome, and she's still got it. So it's turned my life upside down, and um, everything's changed in our world because she used to be, you know, incredibly active person. You know, she was a GP. She used to work hard doing, you know, loads of stuff, and she's an artist as well. She's been diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. It sort of gradually happened, but we got back from a skiing holiday a couple of years ago. So, we, so it was 2015 we got back from skiing and she was. She, we both had viruses. And, it, and it, I don't know if you know anything about ME, chronic no. fatigue syndrome. Oh, the same thing I was going to ask. Same thing as ME. Right. Yeah, they don't call it ME anymore because it's technically not. Whatever mm. ME stands for, it's not that. <laughs> because right. that's something to do with the signals to the brain that it doesn't actually do. Chronic fatigue syndrome, which is a woefully inadequate name, actually, for mm. what it is, because people just think you're tired all the time. But it's a lot more than that, and she has horrible sort of flu symptoms. and So she'll get headaches and sore throats and back pain and neck pain, and mm. uh, she's feeling cold all the time. You, know, mm. even, you have to crank the heating up. Yeah, she's yeah. sweaty. Yeah, her appetite gets bad. She's nauseous. It's a horrible, horrible mm. illness, and, and no one really knows what to do about it. You just have mm. to manage it. Um, so, so that's changed everything in our lives. I'm sort of working out what it how to uh, how to bring the money in and so on, mm. but um, you asked how yeah, I am. No, that's true. That's real. No, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah Jesus. Yeah, man. So yeah. uh, it's a lot to uh, take on. Um, seriously, I mean, like she's got so we got so much hope. We, you yeah. know, hope is a really big thing in our lives, and and you know the reality of hope. You know, because difference between hope and optimism. You know, and I, and I just think actually we're going to come through this, and she's going to come through this, mm. hopefully. Sooner yeah. rather than later, but um, I mean, you just you just got to wait it out. Is that what it is? You have to wait, wait it out. You have to just be very, very careful about what you try and do because people generally got this illness mm. through doing too much, through stress, through trauma, mm. and through physiologically, you get it as a result often of a, of a bit of a whammy of viruses. You know, right. sort of like. So, um, perfect storm of yeah. So you just got to be careful to actually. You do have to change your lifestyle, mm. I think. And and you know, and her lifestyle at the moment is to just be in bed most mm. of the time, mm. and and do what she can. So you know, she might be able to see someone once a week. We had Christmas recently. We we had it in our place. Mm. We've never done before. You know, we've been married for fifteen years mm. now, but we never had Christmas in our own home. We've always been at her parents and my parents. And for the first time in our in, in our lives. We had Christmas at home, and she, and we were just going to be on our own because she couldn't cope with, you know, just having too many people around. We managed to uh, accommodate people, and you know, mm. with the use of our next door neighbour's flat, so that was mm. nice. And so we managed to accommodate a bit of family, and we had a lovely Christmas. But it's just taken it out of her. Yeah. She's, she's she pays for it, you know. She over overdoes it, and she tried really hard not to overdo it. But she yeah. tried she tried really hard not to, but she did, and and you know, I probably didn't help. You know, she's a massive introvert, a massive introvert anyway. And I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm an extrovert, actually. I'm quite, you know, but I'm, uh, compared to her, I'm a massive extrovert. You <laughs> yeah. know. Like to dabble. Just, yeah, yeah, I like, I like <laughs> to dabble, that's it, I like that. You know, the idea of us having Christmas on our own horrified me. Right. Not because not I don't like her company. It was simply that I just want to be around people. Yeah. You, know, you know, I do, family. And, you know, no matter what you think of your family, I wanted them around, you know. Yeah. 
So there you go. How many did you have over in the end? Well, we had had Joe's parents over mm. and her brother, and then my mum and dad came just for for one night. But they, the others stayed for three nights, which was a lot. That really did take its toll in the end. But mm. I would have liked them to have stayed for longer. You see. Mm. But, you know, I love Christmas, I love mm. holiday, I love festivals, I love celebration. And, you know, and I actually feel sad that we take our Christmas decorations down too early. Mm. I was talking to a Polish lady who's, who, who she, was, she was having a real go at me because I helped to remove this giant church Christmas tree. She was cleaning there and she said, why, why have you taken this down? It's too early. And she was angry, she was living mm. with us. Yeah, and um, and she said this church looked so beautiful before, and now look at it. Oh, <laughs> like, no. and, uh, she said in, in Poland, you know, everyone keeps their Christmas trees up for a, a good month or so. And yeah. I, that's right. It should be like that because mm. January is a rubbish month. Bit just of cheer. Gotta, you need to carry on the why cheer. Don't, a bit. Why don't we just keep the mm. festivities going for, for a lot longer? Mm. You know, mm. I mean, like the whole thing of oh, I wish it could be Christmas every day. You know mm. that. Yeah, they've got a point. It shouldn't be Christmas every day. We should, but we should stop in February rather than the beginning mm. of January. Beginning of February, yeah, we can start to feel the spring in the air. You know, that's yeah. the, that is where the change comes. Beginning of January, we might be getting a bit of snow if we're lucky. What else have we got to look forward to in yeah. January? Nothing. Yeah. So we need um, something to pick us up. So if I was prime minister, mm. I would actually legislate for this. <laughs> I would actually check. I'd say let, let's do away with this whole twelve days of Christmas rubbish. Whatever it is, wherever we draw the line, we make it official that all decorations come down at the end of January, not the beginning. Would you vote for me? Well, yeah, with this political landscape, you could probably get that passed as yeah, well. It would be an important part of my campaign. We took our decorations down on the 1st of January. Oh, that's way too early. Uh, it, you know, frightening. It, it was yeah. pretty early. It was like we had the lights mm. up and then we took them down. It was like, oh, they only went up about a couple of days before. Yeah. Then I, I never felt more like a dad though when I was putting the lights away and, and Priya was like, Winter, now, you see, I've got this star and I've got this other star and this set of lights doesn't work. Can we put this star and this star on this other set of lights? I was like... Yeah, we could we could do that. We could do that. So I sat and, and you fitted a fan to it, didn't you? I did it. I did it. I did it as well. And I was like, oh wow, this is this is what it is. This is yeah. this is what dad mode is. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was like, I don't know if I can do it, but I'm gonna try and do it. <laughs> well done. And I was like, I was really impressing myself. Yeah, yeah. I even left the switches on. Not that he would need them, because you just need them one switch to turn them on. Oh, but I had nice. I, I got three switches nice. on this, nice. so I can you know turn one on, turn one yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. And so it's at that moment. Every time you You've take got it to out. go through the options. You've yeah. got to at least, at least yeah. be able to show people yeah. what it could look like. Yeah. Exactly, health and safety. Maybe yeah, you yeah. don't want the star, yeah. one star on. Maybe you want two stars. Yeah. Maybe just want the two stars and not the candelabra. No. You just want maybe, like, the, it just depends. You could yeah. do, like, a little semaphore thing, couldn't you? <laughs> like, you know, contacting your neighbours. <laughs> Look, I've got switches. Just to show off, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Because, uh, but yeah, it was great. And I was like, oh, yeah, just, yeah. I just wanted to leave the switches on, but yeah, I, yeah. I was proud. Yeah, I'm still proud. You can hear it, Kat. You can hear that I'm so proud of this. So, yeah, so that you've got at the moment you're with your wife yeah 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 so so it is I I can't underestimate the the importance of actually having to you know take that into account I've always been wary of being you know sort of a driven kind of a person and Mm. and I've gone too far the other way you know I, I, I actually you know think that work isn't everything you know and I and I think that in relationships are the most important thing in life full stop um you know, I'm I'm very struck by the fact that Graham Taylor, who's just died, 
rest in peace. You know, I'm a I'm a Watford fan. Hmm. I grew up grew up round round Watford area, and and I went to the football on Saturday, just two days after Graham Taylor had died, mm-hmm. and the tributes to this bloke who. You know, he was a driven man. He was very, he was very determined. You know, he went from you know managing a small club, Lincoln City, then to a slightly bigger club, Watford, or he made it a bigger club, and then Aston Villa, and then England manager. And he failed dismally as an England manager, and it was a, it was painful to watch because of the way the the press humiliated him. And yet, on his death, the tributes that were made towards what a what a man he was, because he invested in people. And I believe that actually, you know, relationships is just the most important thing in life. I've no idea what his belief system mm. is, was, you know, whether he believed in, in more, than, more than just the, the here and the now or, or, you know, and where he is now. I've, I've no idea. But, you know, the point is that, mm. you know, I've personally never been uh, someone who would be, you, you know, allow work <laughs> to come between mm. me and the important things in life and, yeah. and relationships and my wife. You know, is is uh, you know the most important human relationship that I have. So, uh, so you know, I've now got to take seriously that actually, I do have to factor in looking after her and being with her, spending good time with her uh, into my life. But at the same time, in honouring her, I have to be more successful at what I'm doing and making the money and, and you know provide yeah. and provide mm, basically mm, yeah so that's pressure. where we're at yeah so, you're, yeah. You're like, you're so it's an interesting interesting year that mm. uh, ahead because you know it's, it's kind of like the reality of it has just been slowly dawning on me over the course of, of the time that she's been ill it's actually not all doom and gloom it's, a, it's an opportunity and it's actually you know it motivates me mm. You know, what, with Joe getting ill, it motivates me to get better at comedy and mm. to, to actually sort of get my name out there mm. and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah see, it's a good engine. You've got to like sort of... Uh, well, it is, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's always been such a massive support. Mm. You know, when she was a, a doctor, she was, she was a full-time doctor for a while. Well, she loved medicine. Obviously, you have to love it to an extent to be able to get through the exams and yeah. qualify. She fell out of love with medicine. In the last 10 years, actually, it goes back a while, you know, she had bad experience with GP surgery that she was working mm. for. And the guy who, who, who was there, single-handed practice, and he was a um, tyrant, right? really. I mean, like, he bullied her and... Yeah. Uh, he treated, you know, treated others badly, mm. but you know, it was subtle, you mm. know, because you know, uh, effective abuse often is. Mm. She fell out of love with with medicine. She was earning reasonable money, and she was able to really support me, you know, financially as as much as anything. And she's still my support. Yeah, great. You know, because she she totally believes, even though it's taking taking me a long time to really sort of get to to where I want to be mm. in comedy. You know, she still believes. Like, great. That's what you need. That's all you need, yeah, man. It is. That's it. it. Is, yeah. Something to kind of just like Supportive give you. Relationship. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And that, that's why I married my, my wife. You need that in your life because because mm. no one else is going to give that to you. Once you find that person that's going to give to you, just mm. going to hold on to that and, and hopefully make it make it the best it can be. Yeah, that energy you fall into creativity is really quite destructive if it's not used correctly. You see it on all these people who go into these insurance yeah. companies yeah. working there, and they're like, oh, they're so miserable mm-hmm. and they hate their lives, but they just go, okay, look, this is what it is. Mm-hmm. I'll accept my fate. This is what I'm going to do. They live that lie of this is this is it. This is fine. This is what life is. I, I don't have to like it, but this is what it is. Mm. But you and, and they never change it. They never mm. take that leap and jump off that mm. thing. Mm. That's why I think that mm. 
creatives are a lot more happy because you're taking risks every day. You know, because <laughs> you know? you're like, I might not eat. Today. I think that I think the, the potential for creatives to be happy is, is enormous. You know, I mean, I was talking to someone after a gig only a couple of weeks ago, and I was saying everyone is an artist. Everyone is a creative, and he said, No, I don't agree. I don't mm. agree. He said, "People, some people are, are not artists. That's why they're driven by money. They're they're in finance. That's what they're seduced by. That's what turns them on. That is their value." And I, and I said, "Well, I don't question that. That's what what that's it's become mm. for them. But I think that everybody is an artist. But people who are creative and know that they're creative, you know, have this enormous opportunity to 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 make life feel worthwhile. And I feel." You know, and I, you know, as comedians, you know, we, you, you go on stage and you're talking to people who half of them really do hate their jobs. Mm. I, I was in, I was in a job that I absolutely. What was your job? I've, I've done loads of rubbish jobs, basically, yeah. but I've never. I'm incredibly old now, 46, and I. Um, it's not old. <laughs> <laughs> of course it is, but the point is, no, it's not old. It, it's old for me. Because I've always been younger. <laughs> oh, yes, what a line. I was um, working. <laughs> the thing is, I, I've done loads of rubbish jobs because mm. I never really wanted to be anything other than when I was, when I was at school, I, wanted, I just wanted to perform mm. in some way, shape or form. And I didn't know what exactly. But I, I somehow ended up a few years ago, a good 10 or so years ago, before, just before I got married, actually, in an office job, a re- the dullest office job you can imagine shifting paper, using a photocopier all the time, but just being on the phone to dull people, mm. commercial estate agents, they were our clients. And it was just like, oh, this is just... It was mm. doing my head in, and I could see how people rocked. Bits of me were dying, and I was aware of it. I'd, I'd, I'd go to the pub, watch football games with my mates, go home, get up, and go to work. That was my life for a, for a while. It was a, it was an interesting insight into how I didn't want to be, mm. and I knew, and somehow I, I I managed to always remain slightly detached from it, and that's why I was crap at the job. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, I oh, must okay. have, they must yeah. have been so quick. That they, 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 they were so keen to get rid of me, I yeah. think, but they didn't because, well, the guy gave me the job with a personal friend of mine. Oh, yeah. it, so it was great. awkward. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You're stuck in there. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, five stages. So, but, you know, I'm so glad I had that job, yeah. actually, looking back on it, because I know what people go through. I know what it's like to be in a job that you absolutely hate. Mm. And I, I have to say, you know, I mean, like, use the word bullied already at work but you know I was I was very I was made to feel very unwelcome when I got there by these two women mm. um, who really sort of like they, they did like to bully people and I particularly because of the, because the guy gave me a job gave me a slightly senior position over one of these women who was really sort of like she was a bitter bitter woman and um, well baptism I mean like you know just to sort of come into that and to to have these two people who were really sort of like against me. I spent three years working in that company. Mm. And in that three years, I, I feel like I've had my fair share mm. of crap jobs, mm. you know. But I've done loads of other stuff. Nothing that I've ever been really proud of, nothing mm. that I've really wanted to give myself to in the same way that as performing and writing. Mm. I used to be in a band, so I, was a, I, I used to love... Um, I haven't written any songs for years. I was a lyricist. So my best friend and I would sort of team up and he he did the music I, I was the uh, 
I was the, the Bernie Taup and he was the Elton John, I think. That's yeah. how it goes. Another Watford reference. <laughs> um, so, you know, I would do, I, I would do the lyrics. Um, he'd do the music. And we, we came out with some really nice stuff, actually, mm. um, which one day... When people have heard of Simon Lilly, they'll be desperate to get hold of these recordings mm-hmm. of, of my music. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, I used to love it. I, used to, like I, I love any, any creative writing and performing. And, and I always knew that I wanted to do that. I wanted to be an actor for a while. Tried to get into drama school. Failed several times. Where did you apply? Lambda, hmm. Webber Douglas, Central place called the Drama Centre, I don't know if it's still there. Yeah. Um, I may have applied at the Arts Ed School, which is near where I live now. can't remember if I applied at Guildhall, but I tried a, f- a few of the, the big ones. Not, I didn't do RADA for some reason, I think it just, I think it just sounded too snooty. Mm. That's why I never went to Oxford or Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, screwed on footlights. <laughs> 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 What monologue did you do? Well, one of them I remember writing my own for mm. Central. Oh. I actually, I actually wrote my own, and, and that's the one I, I really remember doing uh, because I did a monologue about cleaning the bathroom, which was probably one of the start of my stand-up actually because mm. it was observational. I just thought, actually, I really love this. Mm. You know, it was the idea of because I was living in a shared house with people who didn't clean the bathroom, and I just did a, did a monologue. About um, about how men are actually more effective at cleaning the bathroom because they know better better where where the urine has gone. So that was that was the basis of of my monologue. I, I remember doing something from I think I did something from Hamlet, and I remember getting some coaching from this voice coach who helped me through it. And uh, and I thought it was going to be yeah, I thought it was a winner. And she said it. She totally said yeah, you're in. Yeah, sad, eh? And I remember singing a song. I remember singing, um, yeah. singing a song from um, The King and I. I went for. I tried to get into acting as well. Did I, you? I, I finished my degree. Yeah. And I, I did. I applied to like everywhere I could. You know. Yeah. I, I don't know why I didn't have the money to go to to college. I couldn't get a loan, whatever. Like, but so I did my degree in uh, in, in video. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, you know what? I've been doing some acting in the video. I was like, well, yeah. I kind of like this. Yeah, yeah. Let's give this a go. And then went and did the these act this uh, I went to these auditions. I never auditioned for anything n- ever in my life, and I was like about twenty, maybe twenty two, twenty three, and auditioned for the Birmingham School of Speech and Drama. I, I did I, <laughs> I did a Cockney. <laughs> I did a, I did a, like I got that book of uh, male monologues, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. man monologues, yeah, manologues, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so I got that book, and I was like, oh, oh, this oh this one sounds fun. Oh, yeah, I'll do this one. It was in a Cockney accent, right? And I got, like, about maybe four lines into it. And I went, no, stop. Stop. You said that? No, they said... They, <laughs> they stopped yeah, you yeah. four lines in. Yeah, they were like, no, just, just stop. Just stop, look. And I was terrified. I was utterly terrified. I said to them, yeah. I said to them, it's my first audition, I said. And the guy asked me, because you could see how terrified I was. Yeah, yeah. And he said, look, how you doing? I said, I'm fine. My first audition. So I told them. He said, look, they said, stop. Just, just tell us a story. I got the second audition. Oh, you got through? I got through, yeah, but they, I think it was just a, like, a, oh, bless, you know. Yeah. It was, it was, but they were nice, they were nice. Yeah, so I got, yeah. got through to the second audition and uh, then they had to get, had to sing as well. Mm. And I, I'm tone deaf. I cannot sing at mm. all, you know. Mm. And so did the thing and they like, and they were so nice to me as well. They were so nice up there in, in Birmingham and I was like, oh, they were like, oh, you've got a really nice voice, just don't use it. <laughs> it's like it's like the opposite but look at that it's like you have a nice voice but I think you should keep it <laughs> <laughs> that's 
brilliant. <laughs> yeah, uh, so but yeah, so I get it. I get you know. I was like, because you know, oh, I need to perform. I, I need to be up there. I, yeah. I, 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 I great behind the camera. Perfect. No, I want to be in front of it. You know, so yeah. oh, that's so fine. So yeah, so so yeah, so, well, so you start performing. You performing in school as well. What was the plays did? Oh yeah, I did actually. Oh, um, I it was it was actually doing the Midsummer Night's Dream mm. at school that I uh, I really got into acting. I was actually studying economics, English and computing and then we did the play and I got so into it and thought I was so brilliant that I left school and went and studied drama at the what was called Cassio College in Watford. And so I, I, I lost a year, started all over again. Did Cassio College? Like the Cassio calculator? Co- like the yeah, it was called Cassio. No, it was a double S. C-A-double-S-I-O. And it's no longer there. It's not. It's, it's flats now. Stop. Stop me A levels at school. Hated. I was hating them anyway. Couldn't. I wasn't a scientist. And I don't know why I was doing computing. Uh, a level. I could just about. I scraped through my O level um, because I enjoyed programming my old ZX Spectrum. Then I, I realised that I wasn't a nerd and and I couldn't do it. I, and I thought I can. I can act. I, I'll go to drama college and I'll start. But I'll start with an A level in drama. So I went and did A levels in um, English politics and drama Midsummer Night's Dream at school that really got me into it I, I thought I was pretty funny actually cause, and that was when I discovered that uh, you know I didn't have a particularly funny part but I turned it into you know the only way I could actually succeed in it was in sort of like with humour and I remember at one point you know because I played this part of, of Lysander who's one of the lovers and I had to snog this girl and uh, her name was uh, Fiona. She was, she was, and she was very pretty. And I was very mm. pleased to be able to mm. snog her. So I, I was in love with this girl. That was your first part. That was the first part. That I, was like a bit like I just snogged this really pretty girl. Yeah, for yeah. this part, this is this is yeah. definitely. But for we me. didn't rehearse the snog. Oh, and we didn't know that we were going to snog. Mm. We rehearsed obviously for weeks before mm. the play, mm. um, <laughs> and then just on the night of the op- the opening <laughs> night. <laughs> the, uh, head, the, the, the head of English who was directing mm. the play came up to me, his name was Mr Black Hawkins, Hugh mm. Black Hawkins, and he said, Simon, um, that first scene with uh, Fiona needs a bit of passion. Mm. Just give her, a, give her a good long kiss. Mm. Give her a good long kiss. Lovely girl. Give her a... Why not? Mm. You know where to do it. Just, just in, that, in that bit, you know, just... Stop what you're saying and just give her a really good kiss. Mm. And I said, okay, yeah, I will. And so, uh, so I went and told her, this is what we've got to do. Mm. And uh, she was fine with that. So, because we quite liked each other, Gracie, so it was quite nice. Yeah. And so we, we said, well, we better practice, haven't we? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's, that's a dream job. Yeah, you're like, yeah, yeah. I said, I, do you know what? I don't want. There's something about this acting that's really. Mm. I'm just. I just. I'm, mm. I'm feeling this. I'm, every ounce of me. But I didn't. Oh. I knew I didn't really need to practice. Yeah, because uh, you know. Yeah, you had it all. You um, knew. Yeah. Uh, but how old were you then? Eight, sixteen. Oh, you knew everything then. Yeah, I knew. I knew all about it. Yeah, but, uh, about but I, I thought it was maybe for her benefit. We ought to yeah. just practice. So we went. We went. We went. We disappeared. You know, just around the corner, and uh, yeah. but it suddenly became very awkward. You got all giggly. I think we just we didn't snog. We just snogged in, on stage in front of like three hundred people. <laughs> my my gra- grandma and grandpa were there, and I was sort of like I was just watching them out the corner of my eye while I was 
you know, and they they seemed quite happy about it. It, mm. was, it didn't unnerve them, but mm. it went on too long. Our snog was too long for the first night. That was a Thursday. Friday, we cut it down a bit. We just, we, but we, it was still nice. And we didn't. And then Saturday, we had a good snog on Saturday. You know, mm. it was the final night. And I thought we may never snog her again. So we had a good, good old long snog on Saturday. Yeah. Yeah, that was quite bizarre, and we never, we didn't ever snog again, even though we quite liked each other. Mm. It was clearly off stage, it just wasn't going to happen. Mm. It just sort of like, um, yeah, it just got giggly and awkward, so yeah. we'd never did it, and uh, well, it didn't need to, mm. didn't need to, didn't need to. So. You needed the extra like like motivation of three hundred mm. people watching you to do it. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't enough. It was just it was that bulk, kind yeah. of. I think that's it. You know, yeah. I, I'm probably like one of those um, people who goes on a re- reality TV program. You know. Who, you know, maybe a big brother or something, you know, and, and would form a relationship simply for the cameras. And it's not about the relationship, it's about me. And I think that was what our relationship was. It was really about me. Because so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an attention seeker, and that, that, that's why I'm in, in comedy, I suppose. Yeah. But the other, the other thing I wanted to say about that play, actually, because yeah. funny, funny, it comes back to me, because it was at that point, my acting... Did it took a while for me to really sort of like get into it? It was a good two or three weeks, and I know that they were probably regressing having given me the part. And then I suddenly clicked, and I suddenly realised, oh, actually, I think I can do this. And um, and part of it was when when the same the, the guy, the same guy, Mister Blackhawking, mm. he said to me, um, Puck drops this love potion onto your eyes. Mm. Lysander, he gets um, duped into waking up and falling in love with the first person he sees. So poor old Fiona, I binned her because Puck had done me eyes. Mm. And so I woke up and I fancied this other girl. And I can't remember her name, but um, I didn't get to snog her on stage. But what I did do, I started groaning. He said to me, start, start moaning. Just start groaning. Just sort of like... And, and it was... <laughs> I woke up and, and, uh, and there she was. She was kind of the character is in love with Lysander already, naturally, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I, <laughs> and I just woke up and I just started. Mm. And she was like, "You mock me, sir." Oh. It's, and and I just really I love that I love the fact that you know I didn't have to say anything I just had to groan mm. and I, and I realised you know that that's what comic timing's all about because you know obviously um, you know the audience heard it first of all and just and they thought that's hilarious he's just moaning and then they're anticipating more and I just remember on the Saturday night I really went overboard. And I knew that I'd overstepped the line, and I just started, and I just, I've got so into to making these, not, but sir, oh, but Lysander, no, Hermia is your love. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, then I, and then I was just. <laughs> You've gone from, from passionate love to taking a shit. <laughs> it wasn't that. It was more, it was, I'm, if this was my love crimes. Oh, no, sorry, no, sorry, don't sorry. judge me. I'm sorry. Don't, don't judge me. Judge sir. me, sir. This was, this, this was, these were my love crimes. Right? But the trouble is that I then started uh, started doing them out of place. Oh, by, yeah. by Saturday night, I was just oh, so in so into it, so and I was I was I think I, I actually started groaning. <laughs> In just completely the, the wrong places, oh, and, no. and, that, and 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 there was one or two moments, and I just thought, actually, 
that's not funny anymore. <laughs> but I just wanted to do it. Someone came up to me afterwards and, and said, to him, you got a bit carried away, didn't you, with your groaning? <laughs> yeah, I suppose I did. Did you notice? It was only, it was just the one groan that was just misplaced. Yeah, yeah. The devil just, takes it sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just saw this little, yeah. Oh, yeah, here we go. <laughs> I wonder if I could just tweak that just a little bit, just push it a little bit beyond the, oh yeah, that's too much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the joy. That's great. And then I, so then I decided I was going to be uh, famous that way and I was going to be an actor. But it turned out I wasn't actually that motivated or driven to, you know, I, I did, I, I really enjoyed doing A-level drama and then I failed to get into drama school and I didn't really like the scene. Once I realised, you know, actually, I, d- I don't really like actors. I think comedians are so real. Mm. But I think you're much, much more likely to see the real person um, in the comedy world than in the acting world. So I wasn't really that driven to be an actor, but I'm desperate to perform, mm. to tr- sort of see where, where, where I could go mm. on this whole thing. And then I did actually dabble in stand-up years before I ever... Sort of took it a bit more seriously, and that was um, so. That was in the nineties. Where was your first gig? Did, well, it it was in. Um, oh, well, well, my first gig was actually where Jonglers is in Camden. It was Dingwalls on Camden Lock, and my friend uh, Jason had hired the whole place, and he wanted to put on this club light night, and he and he put on like a. It was a charity event, I think. I can't remember exactly, but it was basically they put on a, a fashion show. And they had some live music. He said to me, do you want to do some comedy? And so I said, yeah, I do. Because I'd been talking to him about trying out stand-up. And he said, well, do you want to do it? And I tell you, I was petrified when it came to it. But I thought, because I'm a funny actor, I'll be able to do some sort of character thing. And I'll wear a hat. I'll wear a hat and that'll be funny in itself. And I had quite long hair then. I mean, like, I haven't always had long hair, but I, I had quite long hair, and I just sort of like had this little hat. Hair was just a bit longer than a bob length, and it was just sort of like popping out the sides. And I just thought, oh, it's, I'm just going to look such a character. I'm going to be so funny. People would just laugh as soon as I, I go on stage with the hat with the hair popping out the side. And and of course they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like, it was funny because I thought it was funny. I, so, mm. so I suppose it was funny for all the wrong reasons, but. I got through it because I'd worked quite hard on it. That was my first ever gig and I'd, I'd worked quite hard on it and I got through it and, and I had some friends in the audience and enough of them laughed all the way through. But I, it wasn't like your, your, your standard first gig in, a, in an open mic place. It was like, this is Dingles. This is, mm. this is the, what is now the Jongler's stage in Camden. Proper comedy venue. It was properly mic'd up as well and mm. everything was brilliant. Mm. Lighting. It was a it, it was a proper gig, and I gave me best shot. Then, so uh, different from acting. Yeah. I mean, like you go on stage and you're and you're staring at people who who are expecting you you to make them laugh, and you're just thinking, actually, I can make people laugh, but you know, you got to do your bit mm. as well. And it was actually there's a reality that no, they don't have to do that mm. bit. You have to spoon feed them everything. Mm. You have to give them every reason to make them laugh and you don't actually expect them to give anything back and if they do give you something back then you're going to have a great gig mm. but if you don't if they don't and if they want to stand and judge because they, 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 they were all standing there was no seating it was just sort of like the whole place was just 
packed with people who I don't know why there wasn't it wasn't a proper you know it wasn't a proper comedy venue it was it was just like a big open mm. dance floor with a stage and so on. feels even more like they should have stand. torches and pikes yeah. when they're all standing facing you, you know? <laughs> even more relaxing for you you know your first gig that's it they're not even sitting down you haven't even yeah. got like that, that sex split second of like no I've never seconds. even thought about it but yeah maybe yeah. the fact that they were standing was actually even more unnerving even but, more threatening yeah. they're ready yeah, to go yeah. they're ready but, to go but I mean I was on I was on a High stage. Oh, I was on a quite high stage. It was all right, but could take it a couple of them out before they got you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the same guy, Jason, um, ran ran another in a much more more intimate venue in Clapham, a place called the Tea Rooms des Artistes. And I don't know if that's still still around. The Tea Rooms des Artistes. And I ju- and it was a very s- small venue. And again, it was just sort of like a bit of live music, a bit of live comedy, and probably a DJ. I did my second gig for him and that was a bit better and I'd, and I'd, I'd learnt a, a thing or two between the first and second gig it wasn't great I always wanted to do different stuff I'd never wanted to just sort of like write jokes that didn't have any meaning really mm-hmm. and so my comedy was always kind of quite anecdotal and a bit off the wall and I, and I don't know how, how successful it was really but I never did the comedy circuit at right. all in the 90s literally one or two gigs maybe three gigs in the 90s. Did you have comedy first, then the music, or was it the music first, then comedy? I think it was probably mu- a little bit of music, a little bit of comedy, right. and a poet. I remember a poet as well. You know, we know now, you know, those nights can be frightening. If you're doing comedy and it's just comedians, it's straightforward. You know what you're, what you're getting. I mean, every crowd is always different. You're never going to get the same reaction for your set. You do know roughly where it's going to go mm. and how it's going to work out, but if you've followed on from a uh, a musician or a, a, a spoken word artist mm. or a disco or a raffle ah, mm. then you never know exactly what kind of mood mm. the audience is going to be well I do quite a lot of MCing now anyway so I, I like mm. to chat to the chat to the crowd those, those gigs then I mean I wasn't anywhere near able to talk to the audience so it's it's a wonder that they weren't a complete disaster you know I haven't spoken to anyone about those days I, I'm not really in touch with the people that I hang out with then but yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember them as totally disastrous. Mm. My first gig in the in the noughties, which was when I came back to comedy like years and years later, was a total disaster. That was a five-minute spot in a laughing horse gig in a pub in the West End called The Blue Posts, I think. It's closing it. What? 2005, it was Halloween night. I'd, I went uh, rocked up at this place because I'd spoken to the promoter and I said, I want to I wanna do a gig, and, uh, and I'm really funny. Hmm. And uh, he said, well, uh, and this was in a, in a gig. I met him in a gig in Shepherd's, uh, Shepherd's Bush Road in a, in a basement bar called, um, it was just called the Brook Green Hotel. I met this guy who, who was running this sort of semi-pro night there, and I thought, this is my level. I'll be able to do this. And they were all sort of like doing 10, 15 minutes. It was only sort of like you know, five or six on the bill. I just chatted to the guy afterwards and said, can I, can I get on the bill, please, sometime soon? I'm starting out in comedy. And he said, have you done any comedy before? And I said, uh, no, not for a while. He says, well, I can't put you on here, but I can put you on at this place, The Laughing Horse and The Blue Post. Come along on Monday night, I'll give you five minutes. And I said, all right, cheers. Mm. And I brought up 
posse with me because I was going to be amazing and they were going to love it. Oh, man. I just, basically, I just, me and Joe had been travelling and we'd, I'd, I'd, I'd had some ideas in my head about Eastern Europeans in Speedos. If you go abroad, Eastern Europeans generally are more likely to wear Speedos rather than um, decent swimming shorts. <laughs> I found it, found it amusing and I thought that I'd probably be able to get up on stage and make it amusing, but I didn't really, hadn't really worked out exactly what it was I wanted to say about it, mm. except that these men were middle-aged, they had moustaches and big bellies and they, they were very proud of their speedos. I knew that there was, there was humour in there, but mm. should have had some jokes worked out. <laughs> and so yeah. they stared at me, yeah. and it was like, actually, here I am, mm. in, in London, oh, late October, nearly November, we're, no one's really thinking too much about being on a beach in Eastern Europe, mm. and it isn't funny. And they're just staring back at me, and I was just sort of like, yeah, actually, this isn't funny. And that's when I started chatting to the audience, and mm. I started actually getting a bit more laughter once I actually sort of, like, realised and, and acknowledged mm. that I'd more or less died in front mm. of them. And I said, uh, let's talk about Roman Abramovich. Mm. Because there was a bloke who was sitting in the front row who looked like Roman Abramovich, and he'd been snogging his girlfriend all night. And so it had been a bit embarrassing for everyone, so we talked about that. Mm. And then people laughed a bit more then. And, then. and I managed to almost save face, but I was devastated, really, because it was, it was a pretty, pretty shit five minutes. That's and a first gig back after ten years. I never really did it properly before. Mm. I was never doing the comedy circuit. I was just trying my hand at stand-up in a kind of variety night. So, yeah, it was my first gig, and it was a disaster, and I stayed in bed for about four days after oh, that. yeah. yeah. And I thought it, I was spooked, and I should never have done it on Halloween night. Oh, and yeah. I, I thought, yeah, that's what, that's that's what it was. Yeah. I thought I've I've gone out and gigged on the devil's night. Why 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 would I do that? Mm. And I, but then I started taking responsibility for the fact that I was rubbish, and I needed to write some jokes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my next gig after that was yeah. all right. Yeah. It was all right. Yeah. It was a lot lot better. Yeah. And I actually, and one of the guys, bless him, who came along to that first gig I did at the Blue Post, he came along to this second gig. He still believed in me, even, oh. though, even though it was... It must be so horrible to go and support a friend and watch them just die. I mean, it's horrible watching people die on stage. You know, for him to have, have come along for the second time, uh, for the second gig, and he gave me very good feedback mm. and very honest feedback. And, and he said, you know, that was a, that was a whole lot better. Well done. Oh. And it was... Um, so that was, that, that was it. That was progress. What do you do to get yourself out of that, that kind of state of, oh, God, I, like, I died so hard last night. What, what do you, what is it you Well, do? I don't care anymore. <laughs> I don't care anymore, really. I just, I go to sleep yeah. and I wake up the next day and then I remember and I, and if it's a really bad one, I feel quite bad. It's like when Watford lose. You know, Watford got, got trashed 6-1 by Liverpool of, earlier in this season I woke up the next day feeling as bad about that as I would after a bad gig yeah. and it wasn't even my fault they're just my team it's not to say I don't care about what for getting trashed 6-1 by Liverpool it's just that I woke up thought oh did that really happen oh and then you just have to get it out of your mind mm -hmm. and you get on I don't let it bother me anymore but you know, which, which which should be a really noble thing and it should be sort of like, 
And that is the secret of my success. But there, <laughs> there's been no success, Winter. Oh, no. There I am. Oh, no. <laughs> no, it's not true. It's, it's, it's not like, true. It's, it's like a hangover, true. though, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. Like, like when you died so hard, like, oh, it, 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 there's a little. That, like when you see someone who mm. is, might be dying on stage, mm. or you see some, a piece of acting mm. on TV, you go, oh, this is, this is, that's the worst thing mm. I've seen on. on you're mm. like, that those hairs on the back of your neck stand mm. up. You're mm. like, oh, this is terrible. Mm. This is the worst thing I've ever seen. And mm. you have that only about yourself mm. when you're thinking back about that gig, and mm. it stays for a while. Mm. It is like a well, I do. Uh, well, it, yeah. I what mean, do you do? What do you do to get rid of that? What do you, well, what, what do, you do? Just go to sleep? Is that no, no, just... no. I mean, like you do have to learn, obviously. And I, I'm in recovery still, right, from the worst death I've ever had on stage, right. which was the first. Edinburgh show that I ever did on my first solo show, mm. my one and only solo run at Edinburgh. I did a couple of previews in London, which isn't nearly enough, you know, because people will start previewing their Edinburgh show, you know, as soon as, well, they'll start previewing it in January, some people. Mm. I don't gig prolifically, and I didn't really know how to go about getting loads of previews booked up in London. Mm. I'd worked fairly hard on my, my show and material. I'd been meeting up, teaming up with a guy and, you know, was helping me to get some ideas together as well. So I was, uh, you know, so I, I, it wasn't like I'd I just had a whole load of ideas mm. and I was just going to spew it all out one day. So I had worked on it and I'd done a couple of previews in London and the previews had done... A, Gone okay, I thought, to a fairly supportive crowd uh, on both occasions. And then I did my first show at Just the Tonic, the Tron, mm. basement uh, bar of the Tron. And then I took to the stage, August 2013, mm. did my first ever solo show, mm. and oh, it was horrible. It was just, I just didn't bond with anyone. Yeah. And I couldn't see anyone. I had the spotlights in my eyes. I didn't have a pre, I was supposed to have a preview at that venue, mm. but um, didn't have any bums on seats oh, for right. that. So, I, um, I, so, so my first Edinburgh show was an utter disaster. Mm. I mean, I recovered from it. I had to get through 50 minutes. Mm. It was about 50 minutes of material, a bit more than that. And barely any laughter, really, mm. for my solo show. You couldn't imagine a worse beginning to a, an, an Edinburgh run mm. than that. And, and I allowed the press in. And I had um, a guy from The List in. Mm. And I had, I think there may have been someone from the Three Weeks was there as well, but they, bless them, didn't right up on the show but mm. the guy from the list did mm. and he gave me one star which is what it was worth that, mm. that performance but I managed to recover within a couple of days I, I had another reviewer in and gave me four stars so total five star show <laughs> and I actually managed to get through the run and kind of enjoyed it but that first show was so horrible mm. My dear wife was sitting in the front row trying to encourage me mm. and trying to laugh in the right places. And Rosie, my friend Rosie Wilby was there as well to support me and she was, she was trying to giggle as well. But it was just such an awkward awkward time and, and I don't know why. 
I, I still, to this day, I still don't know why it was such hard work. I mean, there's lots of reasons. So I can't say that I went to bed, woke up and just felt like Watford had just been bashed mm. because it wasn't like that. This was actually the start of my Edinburgh run. I'd put some money into it. Mm. I'd, I'd um, committed to being in Edinburgh for the whole month and I wanted to, uh, I wanted this to be a good springboard for the for the the next phase of my comedy career, mm. and in actual fact, it was more about surviving it than mm. than thriving on it. And, and I, I say I'm I'm still in recovery from mm. that experience to an extent. Mm. But I quickly managed to regain my confidence. Yeah, so quickly managed to do a decent show by a couple of days later, getting a decent review mm. and plenty of good audience feedback lots of people saying oh really enjoyed it but you learn more from the deaths than the, than the mm. successes so it's like that that in a fairness i know it's a horrible mm. baptism of fire mm. but you hit the wall straight away mm. and went okay mm. there's only one place to go and that's mm. upwards you know you got your review and started enjoying it and you can also i suppose that's true yeah, I mean, I, I never thought of it in quite those terms. I never sort of thought, right, I, 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 it can't get any worse than this, because it could have done. I could have just got savaged by more critics. Mm. I didn't read any reviews. Mm. And to this day, I've never read that one-star review. I just know that it's there. All right. Because I was... That's how... Tra- and I wouldn't recommend not reading your criticism, because you, you've got to deal with it. But, but I've left it too long now, so I'm not going to bother now. Mm. And it's not relevant, and it's it, it, that was then. You've changed, and like you, you know, yeah. everything's changed. It's yeah. like too old now, isn't it? It's like yeah. it's not gonna. You might laugh, you might laugh at it. You're like, mm. well, you're fine, mm. but it's, mm. it doesn't have any bearing on who mm. you are as a performer mm. or where you are in comedy right now. No, that's it. No. But it, I know you get, that time is gone. It's time mm. for everything, isn't it? Mm. And, and why flagellate yourself with that? You know, no, mm. I, I need all of the pain. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Things can always get worse, mm. you know, because. <laughs> I mean, I do. I, I mean, I take your point. In that, yeah, I could have just sort of like thought, yeah, okay, um, nothing to lose now. Absolutely nothing to lose. Just go for it. But I've never been free enough to do that. I think that's a great attitude if you can actually harness it. If you can harness a disaster, if you can, if you can take a failure and just do whatever you can to turn it into success as quickly as possible, then mm. then do it. But sometimes you just need to process it. And so I was processing it, but not energised by it, yeah, if you see what I mean. I know what you're saying. Well, being a performer anyway, and doing stand-up, you know that you're always going to be creating and destroying. Mm-hmm. And as you go, it's either going to work or it's not. And if it doesn't work, well then, you you have the tools to make it better the next time. I get annoyed with myself with yeah. something, and I go, right, no. Yeah, yeah. We're never happy. That's not happy again. Yeah. Okay, we're locking into this. Well, that's right. And and I think, uh, you know, you've got to acknowledge and regret things mm. and allow and, and, and rather than just, you know, because for a long time I've sort of felt, uh, what's the point in regret? Yeah. There's no point in regretting anything. I have no regrets, which is kind of a good thing. But actually, if you deny your regrets, then you're denying yourself an opportunity to really you know, do something that, that uh, an achievement that outweighs your regret, mm. you know. Um, but on the other hand, you know, uh, you know, there's various levels of, of regret, you know, and I, I've never actually sort of like allowed myself to say I would, I fully regret 
what happens. Um, you know, and I'm not sure how helpful it is is to do that. But when, when but you know, I mean, I, I probably regret allowing the press in, and it probably just changed everything. Mm. You know, it changed the dynamics of the room. It changed my performance because I just put too much pressure on myself mm. way too early in, mm. in a show that had great potential. You know, without that self-awareness the regretting of that uh, a situation in everything mm. in life you'll never learn mm. it's like you know yourself you, I mean I, I there's lots of things I regret in just mm. everyday life I go oh man I wish I you know I mm. wish I hadn't done that there's that that, mental, that mentality of oh like that I think it's, that's kind of built in when you're younger mm. you go, don't regret anything just you know you did it that's the most important thing yeah. I, did, I did it I took yeah. I did it as a matter of winter. no that's not correct that is not right. That's not how you should live your life. You should be aware of your failures and go, okay, I regret that. I can fix that the next time if that pops up. I'll mm. face that and show that I'm responsible for that action yeah. in my life yeah. rather than kind of going, ah, you know, it's better to have, yeah. have, have done it and, and not, than not done it. No, that's yeah. not, the, you're not learning anything from that mantra. It's yeah. like, oh, well, I've done it now. That's fine, main thing. Off we go to the next problem. I blame Robbie thing. Williams. Yeah, but that, didn't he say no regret? He's saying yes. it's He probably didn't write it. Mm. No, he didn't write it. I blame Edith Piaf, regret Rianne. Yeah. yeah, I blame yeah. her. But I think, you, you, you know, it's all well and, well and good to say I have no regrets, but you've got to think about where you where are you going with that statement? Yeah, that, <laughs> that person's a massive asshole. Aren't yeah. You? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what we're saying. That's, it. that's yeah. true. That is it. Yeah. Uh, you, you're a Christian. Oh yeah, I am. I'm scared of of religion. I do have a very deep faith. So I does that come hand in hand? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think I've been brought up a Christian. Mm. I've taken you know a lot of time to work out what is real for me. I did a degree in English and theology mm. and religious studies, largely because it was an easy course to get onto. You know, religious studies, um, I, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd done very poorly in those A-levels and I somehow managed to get on a course studying religion and, and theology. And it was great to actually sort of look at what I'd been brought up with in the context of other world religions. And also to look at the philosophy of religion as well and to actually just look at religion from a humanistic point of view and to understand that there is such a thing as Christian humanism as well. So it's all kind of a long, long time ago now, this, the academic side of stuff, but I, I really grew as an individual just through studying and working out, you know, what, what it was I really believed in, mm. understanding that religion, I think... You know, whatever religion it is, you know, if it's kind of ritual, for me, it doesn't have a huge amount of value, mm. um, you know. I mean, like, you, you hear all people talk about, oh, I've got faith, it's a personal thing, and they don't necessarily want to talk about it. Mm. And I am a little bit like that, in that I'm, I'm quite, I, I am quite reticent to talk, because I, th I think that people who... You know, because I've been brought up in the church, I've seen so much of people, um, you know, mouthing off about, you know, what it is that you should believe, mm. that I've found it very off-putting mm. to be like that. And also because I've, I have been like that, you know, I've made those kind of mistakes. Because when you do believe something passionately, mm. and I do, I, you know, I passionately believe the doctrine of Christianity, I do, but... It, I'm so aware that it's got so much baggage mm. 
and it always has. It's not just because we're we're in 2017 that it's got baggage. It's always had baggage mm. from an early age because because I was brought up to go to church, and my two older brothers were brought up to go to church, and my two older brothers said, "No, we're not having this. I'm not going." Didn't weren't interested, and because I carried on going. Partly out of loyalty to my parents, to be honest with you, but also because I actually some, somehow had this deep-rooted belief that there was a God. I carried on going, and, my, and so I would try converting my brothers mm. to my way of thinking. Um, so I know what it's like to be a dick. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Right. Okay, to, you know, to be to, to over try and try yeah, to sell it, to try no, and yeah, sell it. it. You know, I really, I, I, and I, uh, but you know, I have to be unashamed about it. Yeah, that's. Yeah. And so you know, like I was saying to you before we started um, recording, you know, yeah, I'm I'm involved in in running a church youth group, and I love it, and I'm not ashamed to tell people, you know, I'm I'm an active member of a church. Mm. There's nothing you can't ask me about it, but I just I I, I do feel like. Very personal thing. It is it, well. It's a, it has to be obviously. You know, it's a deeply personal thing. But I think that actually, you know, I was saying about Graham Taylor earlier. You know, I've no idea what it was he believed in, but you know, that guy's actions as a human being. You know, pe- the amount of people that talk about what a decent man he was mm. spoke louder than his achievements, mm. even though. As far as Watford Football Club is concerned, his achievements were huge. But as far as the national game is concerned, um, he struggled. Whatever rhetoric he came out with, ultimately, the thing that we remember and we're thankful for with Graham Taylor, we, I'm speaking largely on behalf of Watford, <laughs> but, you know, anyone, and, and the, the family, but anyone who, who, who had a, a bit of respect for the guy, was, you know, him in his actions as a human being, the small things, the way that he related to people, the way that he actually took time out to be with people. Mm. You know, I mean, I got a letter from Graham Taylor when we got married. Joe and I, Joe's a Derby County fan. Mm. I'm a Watford fan. My best man, Buck, was and still is a bit of a Watford fan. And he wrote to Graham Taylor and said, I'm, you know, I'm going to be best man, my mate's wedding. This is his name. His wife's name's Joe. She's going to, She's a Derby County fan, but he's a passionate Watford fan. It would be just great if you could just drop him a line. And he knew that Graham Taylor was the sort of guy who would do that. Mm. And he did. He wrote us a letter, and it was read out of the wedding. It was a mm. lovely little letter, just a bit of humour. You know, oh, well done, Simon. I hear you're getting married. My spies are out. I hear you're marrying a, a Derby County girl. Well, she must be special if you're willing to marry a Derby fan, you know. And it was sort of like, nice. Mm. You know, you read that at the wedding, everyone giggles. Loads and loads and loads of anecdotes about mm. him. And he even turned up at someone's wedding to be best man because mm. they'd asked him. Mm. This was a fan who he had nothing, he had no interaction with apart from shaking his hand once. Mm. And he turned up and he was best man for his wedding. And he built Watford into a community family club. And so the bottom line is what I'm saying is actions speak louder than words. And, you know, whatever Graham Taylor's personal beliefs were, we know that he was a decent man. Mm. Whether he was much more than just a decent man, I don't know when I say much more. Whether, you know, whether he took, took it to a spiritual level, I don't know. Whether he, you know, but... I do know that if my belief system is, is, is of any value, then it's, 
it's it's not about talking about it too much. It's mm. about being able to live it. Mm. You know, you know that cliche of walk the walk, not talk the talk, and it's mm. it's it's that basically. I, I, I'm sort of surprised that you that you, you you threw it in there because it, you know, in in comedy in the comedy world, I don't talk about it much, mm. and people don't ask me about it. Mm. Um, you know, people I've I've mentioned on stage, you know. I, I do this this joke, you know, because I, I was brought up a Christian, and my mum said to me, you know, marry a good Christian woman, you know, and um, and I was in a bar and I met this girl and I really liked her and I wanted to marry her, mm. and I said to her, "Are you a Christian? Because I want to marry you," mm. and um, and she said no. Uh, and she said, "I used to be a Christian, um, but now I'm Christina." <laughs> And I and I do this joke, and it's sort of like, well, okay, that's a joke, and and it's a, and it's just me being flippant about what I've been brought up with. Yeah. Don't say too much about what I believe now, but it's just a just a, a joke about gender. It's, mm. it's just a joke about a transsexual. It's yeah. nothing more than that, yeah. um, really, and it, it's just wordplay. But you know, um, people never never sort of like asked me anything more about it you mm. know sort of like and, and I very rarely talk beyond that in mm. in comedy because it's very I've, I've found it very difficult to write any comedy about belief I think there's some amazing comedy out there you know that is is about sort of poking fun at religion which is which is good because I do think that religion needs to be laughed about it's hilarious mm. and I think Jesus was not a religious character and he found religious people funny mm. uh, when he wasn't shouting them down you know mm. so I, I think religion is funny but I I haven't personally found it possible to sort of like make it uh, I, you know for me I haven't got there yet to that point where I can write about and and, and joke about it and laugh about it I think it's right. I think it's a very you know it, it is a deeply personal thing mm. But I am very, very happy to talk about it mm. to people who are interested, oh, yeah. you know, because I, but I'm very unhappy to talk about it and, and shoehorn it in if people don't want to talk about it because what's more annoying than um, forcing your beliefs on people, mm. which is effectively what you're doing. You know, and when you're a comedian with a microphone, you've got to be careful about what you're, what you're dishing out. You know, we have a responsibility. Mm. And so for me... I could be a whole lot bolder and a whole lot cleverer about it, uh, but so I, I kind of play it safe, really, with the, mm. with, the, with the comedy, and certainly I am passionate about it. You know, as I, as I say, relationships are the most important thing mm. in my life, and relationship with God rather than religion. Well, I mean, there's that there's that classic line in um, in the Gospels where Jesus says, you know, do unto others as you'd have to done to yourself. Mm. You know? I mean, it's sort of like. He's basically saying, uh, in all things, um, you know, it's in the context of prayer, actually, you know, and what you ask for, and what you expect to receive, you know, God is, Jesus is effectively saying, you know, God is good, um, so, and he will give good things, and therefore you be good <laughs> because, you know, but it, it's rooted in relationship. It's rooted, it's not, it's not a, I mean, yes, yeah, I mean, the, the word law is, is definitely there in the Bible, but, you know, it's not a word I, I'm th that that keen on, really. But it, it, it's the, the law of love, which is that we are loved 
therefore we love. Mm. That's that's the law that I that I'm I'm most interested in, or try and try and live live by. Okay. And the, the there's a Christian circuit though, isn't there? Oh, I've got nothing to do with that. No, you don't go on the Christian. I don't. Time. I just. I'm just not. Why? I'm just not comfortable with it. Really? It, I think it's. I, I. I think there's some really, really funny Christian mm. comedians, mm. but I just haven't ever pursued any kind of Christian comedy. Mm. I mean, like, like Milton Jones is a Christian. Mm. He's brilliant. Tim Vine, mm. superb. Uh, Miranda, I think, is a Christian. You know, famous people have made 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 money out of it. You know, Milton and Tim. You know, really clean comedians. Really sort of like play it very safe about the kind of stuff they do. And and typically, it's all kind of wordplay and mm. one-liners and puns. And that's their style. And I've got enormous respect for the way they've done it. I'm not really much of a sort of one-line kind of merchant. And I'm, I'm more of a sort of storyteller and surrealist, maybe. I don't know, a bit of an observation. You can do comedy and be a Christian, mm. but what's the point in some kind of cliquey little mm. circuit within mm. a circuit? I'm not into that. Mm. But, you know, having said that, you know, if people want to go to a gig in a church, that's fine. Uh, to be honest with you, no one's really asked me to do it anyway. I've done the Greenbelt Festival thing, which started off as a very Christian event, but has, over the years, has become a, um, a an arts festival where all sorts of musicians and artists and speakers from all sorts of persuasions will come and be given a stage. And it is a traditionally a Christian event. It's mm. a traditionally like a, a, a Christian festival, and you'll get a bishop, an archbishop there, and and all sorts. You know, giving you know, leading seminars and so yeah. on. But you'll also have Peter Tatchell there talking about gay rights, and he's very famously targeted the church for he's perceived as homophobia. Mm. So it's a place which will give a stage to all sorts of people and persuasions. But mm. and I've done stand up at Greenbelt just mm. in there, sort of um, just done sort of like ten minute slots there. Yeah. But I haven't done that for years. Mm. Like you're very warm on stage and you're high energy. Uh, Sometimes. Yeah. Oh, people t- typically say I'm laid back. Oh, actually. really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But thank you for saying that because yeah. I'm trying to get away from being the laid back. But I started off wanting to be Jack D. He was the one who inspired me more than anyone at the time when, with regards to stand-up. Mm. You know, seeing Jack D and Joe Brand just doing what is, looks like low-energy, grouchy comedy mm. was, to me, yeah... These people have got something to say because they're miserable mm. bastards. And I just thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. Mm. That I could do that. I could go on stage and just, just sort of like, mm. literally stand there and snarl. And mm. I, I reckon if Jack D can do it, I can do it. And so I started off thinking that um, that was the way to go. Mm. And people did say, oh, well, you're, you, you're very relaxed on stage, very, very laid back. Even Jack D and Joe Brand in the 90s, there was so much energy surrounding what they were doing. Mm. You know, there's no such thing as a successful low-energy com- comedy mm. uh, comedian. It's just just can't be done because they put everything into it, even if it's being very deliberately grouchy. Mm. Um, Have you done comedy for kids as well? No, you'd be great. I'm sure you'd be great at. Great I at try. I, I I'm I'm trying to 
trying to be a bit funnier with the people that I, the kids that I, I work with mm. at the church. No, I haven't done comedy for kids, but if there's money in it and, I, and you think I could do it, then maybe I mm. should look into that. Professional clowns. Yeah. But we're not yeah. clowns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You, know, you know, that's it. We're stand-ups, mm. not clowns, but we mm. are clowns, but mm. we're not clowns. You know, this is it. I think one of the things I, I've got to... You know, I don't think there's an age limit on this stuff, but mm. I do think that as you mature... I'm still finding myself as a comedian, but at the same time, I think I've got to be aware that there's stuff that, you know, is going to be more suitable to the older you than the younger you. Mm. And I've got to work out what that is. I've got to move with it. We all have. I mean, mm. like, but there's, there comes a point, you know, so now that I'm in my <coughs> 40s, mid, mid-40s, to late 40s, getting, you know, 47 this year. Yeah. You know, so I'll be, um, I've got to think about the difference between being high energy and being embarrassing dad. <laughs> Alan Pardew, uh, you know, recently sacked by Crystal Palace. He, he danced in front of a camera last year in front of, this is, uh, because I'm a Watford fan, okay. Watford were playing Crystal Palace at Wembley Stadium in, in a semi-final of the FA Cup. And Palace won. And I think it was the winning goal, and they caught him on camera just doing this this dance, like just shaking his shoulders around and shimmying in front of the camera. And he's a middle-aged man, and, and everyone was sort of like, you shouldn't be doing that. And I think as, uh, as comedians, we've got to do it with such conviction and be so sure of what we're doing that age doesn't matter, and we've got to, and we've got to be self-aware enough to know that there are some things that you don't do anymore. I don't know, I, I, but I haven't, I haven't quite got there yet. But I'm, mm. I'm working it out, and there's certainly material mm. that you can't can't do mm. when you're once you reach a certain age. Mm. You know, I've only done stand up since I've been married, so I don't have any stuff about you know the single market dating on the internet I, mm. I, I don't have any material about that so and it would be totally inappropriate if I ever tried to mm. try to do any stuff that mm. I, just, I can't relate to it mm. I've got no experience of it I mean like I I did a I did I did a routine about our relationship with machines and I was I was basically saying about you know the sense of self-checkout the the way it shouts at you you know unexpected items you know it's just prosaic stuff that everyone's thought about mm. And, every, and lots of people have done material about, you know. But I was saying that my relationship with the Oyster card machine mm. is very good mm. because that was that quick and easy, and it and it's like you know you get your credit card out, you whack it on there, you update your Oyster card, job done. It doesn't shout at you, nothing. It just says successful transaction, and then it says uh, next time, why not try topping up online? And I just. So I'm not telling this in a particularly funny anecdotal way, but the point is that my um, take on that was if I'd been dating someone, you know, and I really enjoyed that night. We'd gone out, we'd had a meal, and she, and then and then I said, you know, it was lovely, and she said, next time why not try Match.com? You know, it was it. It felt like that with the oyster card machine. Mm. You know, because I enjoyed topping up on the oyster card mm. machine, and now they're saying next time try try, try to top out online. Mm. And it's sort of like, but I, I actually thought I don't even 
you know, I've never even had experience of going on these mm-hmm. dates. So why should I be talking about it? Yeah. That's not an, 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 an yeah. analogy that really works. You can't really because it's not. It's not actually really me. Yeah, a, a, a contrived. Exactly, exactly. it's yeah. contrived. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, what, so what's in the what pipeline for you? You're looking after your wife Joe at the moment. Mm. What's, what's in the pipeline apart from that? You're just getting. Well, I, I really enjoy uh, running a little gig fortnightly. So I'm going to carry on and crack on with that. I'm going to write a new show mm. this year. I hope. What's the name? Do you know the name yet? It might be called God and Football. My first show, the disastrous, semi-disastrous, ultimately successful show was called God, Greed and Football. And I'm dropping the greed because it, it was a serious bit and I actually majored too much on that. But, you know, I'm fascinated by what people worship mm. because I think that everyone worships something. And I think that there's huge comedy in it. Uh, and you see it very blatantly in, in football. Mm. You see it with Graham Taylor dying. You see that a messiah has, has been lost, mm. you know, to a certain band of followers. And, um, you know, I'm fascinated by the parallels between God and football, you know, actual religion and football. So I might revisit that, but I might not. I might actually not put myself under the pressure of having such a specific title because that was part of my undoing, I think. Because, I, you know, I, when I talk about my the show that I did, it was 2013, I don't think that show was a failure, but I look back on it and it was three and a half years ago that I did it and I think the very fact that I haven't followed it up tells you something about my relationship with the solo show Mm -hmm. you know so I'm actually sort of like I think what what I've got ahead what I've got in the pipeline to answer your question I don't see myself as a very natural club comedian in that I don't like doing short spots in the same way that I enjoy going deeper with a subject Mm. Um, you know I mean obviously if you can go if you if you can actually you know write a meaningful hour of stuff that is personal and I and I didn't do that mm. you know I was doing I was just cobbling material together before mm. material that I'd built up that seemed to fit into the theme God greed and football mm. and I didn't um, I didn't write a personal show I'd like to write a personal show mm. and see if I can make that funny yeah um, and what else is in the pipeline I think just sort of like upping my profile yeah, just getting my my diary a bit a bit fuller, really, and yeah, kicking on. I mean, I'm I'm excited by it, even though it's been a long old journey. Mm. I'm excited by it because every now and again I stop and I ask myself, you know, am I doing the right thing, mm. and should I do something else? And I just think I can't do anything else. Mm. I'm totally incapable of doing anything else. This is the thing for me. <laughs> I must be born to do this because I can't do anything else. You know, so it's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I think that's it, Simon. Yeah, Simon Lilly, thank you for coming on the show. It's been Pleasure. great. Thank you for having me. And that was Simon Lilly for episode 33. Yes, we've made it to 33. I say, if you like this podcast and you want to follow us on Twitter, we're there at The Comedy Defect. If you want to follow me, it's at Winter Phone Under.
But if you like this podcast enough that you feel like you should donate something to us, just find us on Patreon. Go to Patreon, type in The Comedy Defect Podcast. Donate as much or as little as you want. Or leave us a nice, honest review. Share your favourite episode. Join the Facebook group so you know what's going on with The Comedy Defect Podcast. I've got a preview of my Edinburgh show coming up. It should be this week. The details of that are on my website, which is winterphonander.com. So go check out that stuff there. I'm also going to be reading from the Guinness Encyclopedia. And those jokes and one-liners which I'll pull from that book will be on the internet, on Twitter. And that is Encyclopedic Jokes at Guinness Jokes, which I'll be doing this week. I've got a bit of time. Even though the lists keep falling in my way. The gauntlet of lists. We're getting through it. I'm <laughs> getting through it. <laughs> but next week we've got a very funny guy. He's on loads of fringes. He's got he's doing a really interesting show at the moment about Richard Nixon. It is Steve McLean. That is next week for episode 34. And that's it from us for now on the Comedy Defect podcast. We'll see you next week for episode 34 with Steve McLean. Mm-hmm.